Uh, the link that you need to join us in that Zoom chat after uh, our teaching this evening can be found already in the uh, chat of the live stream. Uh, it's also in the chat of YouTube. Well, much of what we're sharing week by week is rooted in a book that's written by John Mark Comer, who's a pastor, speaker, and author, a theologian based in the U.S., his book is called God Has a Name, and I thoroughly commend you to get hold of a copy. Well, as we journey through these sessions week by week, you may want to scribble down a few thoughts or a few notes or a few comments so that we can pick up on them when we get to our Zoom discussion. Well, I want to uh, begin this evening by reading our anchor scripture verses for Theology Condensed, which come from Exodus chapter 34, uh, verses 6 to 7. They say this, the Lord, the Lord... The compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents of the third and the fourth generation. Well, imagine for a moment that you live in the ancient Near East. It's 1,500 BC, and you're busy wearing loincloths and generally wearing a lot of draped linen. You're a Hebrew. You formerly have been a slave in Egypt, and now you're zigzagging your way through the desert um, to around Mount Sinai. You live within this world, which is a pressure cooker world, which is spiritually charged with a universe that's full of gods and goddesses. Now, these divine beings are anything but nice. These gods are mean, they're, they're finicky, they're unpredictable, they're ready to fly off the handle uh, at the slightest infraction. So what do you do when you live in that kind of pressure cooker? Well, what you do is you make sacrifices, of course, to keep the gods off your back, or at least to keep them on your side. You start with a bird, and then maybe you build up to a goat, and then maybe they demand a bull, and before you know it, they might even be asking you to sacrifice a child, probably your firstborn child. Now, as a consequence of all of this, you live in a state of perpetual fear of these gods. And then one day, one great, one great day, Yahweh, the, the true creator God, comes to your rescue. He saves you out of Egypt, he leads you through the Red Sea and across the desert, he gives you food and he gives you water to survive the journey. And here's the thing, you've done absolutely nothing to deserve any of that. Who is this God? He's nothing like all these other gods, as we've discovered in previous weeks. He, he's a God who even tells you his name, his name is Yahweh, and he invites you into a relationship with himself. He really wants to know and to be known by you. And then he tells you what he's like. And the very first thing that you learn is that he is compassionate and he is gracious. Now, in the Hebrew Scriptures, order really matters. Why? Because order is a clue as to what is most important. The fact that compassionate and gracious is at the top of Yahweh's character traits means that it's his dominant trait the most important thing that there is to know about him. So what we're going to do for a moment is have a look at each of these words separately, compassionate and gracious. We're going to break them up before we then put them back together again. Compassionate in Hebrew is usually translated as merciful, and it comes from a root word meaning female womb. The idea behind this word is the feeling that a mother would have towards her infant child. 
Now remember, in using this word, God is describing his character. So let's have a look at a a few examples where this word rahum, the Hebrew word for compassionate, is used in Scripture. And by looking at these other places, we're going to start to get a much fuller picture of what Yahweh means when he describes himself as being compassionate. Well, in 1 Kings chapter 3, there's a, a really quirky story about two women who are busy fighting over a child. And both of them claim that they're the mother. But of course, this is the ancient Near East, so they can't book a lie detector test. They can't appear on the Jeremy Kyle show or the Jerry Springer show for a DNA test. So King Solomon exercises his godly wisdom instead with an ingenious plan. He says, well, what we'll do is we'll cut the baby in half, and half of uh, the baby can go to each of the mothers, and then you'll both be happy. Of course, in doing that, what he was doing is flushing out the true parent. And sure enough, immediately the true mother, it says this in Scripture, was deeply moved out of love for her son and said to the king, please, my Lord, give her the living baby, don't kill him. In the original Hebrew, it it reads that she was deeply moved by her raham, her intense, visceral, motherly love for her child. That's the kind of love that God has for us. Well, here's some more scripture. In the prophet Isaiah, Yahweh says this, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she is born? Though she may forget, I will not forget you. Psalm 103, verses 8 and 13, The Lord Yahweh is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Words straight out of Exodus chapter 34. And then in verse 13, it says, As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord Yahweh has compassion on those who fear him. So from this brief selection, albeit there are many more that could be shared, we can conclude that raham is how a parent feels about their child. Now, we see this kind of compassion in our household on a regular basis. Mostly, it must be said from Meg. If there's so much as even a single cry in the night or a single child that's hurt themselves, Meg's right by their side before I've even noticed expressing her raham, her her visceral compassion to our children. You see, Meg is compassionate to the very core of her being. I just crack jokes as if laughter suddenly takes away the pain of of your bleeding leg or suddenly removes a memory of some horrific nightmare. That's the difference between the two of us. And all of this is just a glimpse, it's just a faint echo of how Yahweh feels about his kids, how he feels about you and how he feels about me. Now, let's be really honest for a moment. For some of us, such a description of such a compassionate parent just doesn't connect at all with us because we've never, ever experienced that in our earthly lives. Maybe your dad was always mad, just waiting for you to muck up. Maybe your mum was a perfectionist, always nagging at you. Maybe your parents were neglectful or even absent. Now, we need to say that's absolutely not okay. That's wrong and it's sinful. But I do want to encourage you not to do something, and that's to not project your human experience of being parented into your view of how God fathers you. Because God's love for you is emotive, it's visceral, it's it's an in the marrow of your bones kind of a love that's stronger than even life itself. That is how God feels about you. Well, I wonder if you can just take a moment to allow that to sink in.
So rahum or compassion is, is a feeling word. And God says at the top of the list, that's in my character. Now, by contrast, gracious is an action word. In Hebrew, it's hanun, and it means to show grace or to show favor. Hanun is something that you do. To hanun someone is to help them out in a time of need. Hanun goes beyond just words and feelings. It actually goes to the point of action. So we see some great examples of this in the Scripture as well. Hanun is used in Exodus chapter 22, verses 26 to 27, where it says this, If you take your neighbor's cloak as a pledge, return it by sunset, because that cloak is the only covering that your neighbor has. What else can they sleep in? When they cry out to me, I will hear, because I am gracious." So here, gracious has to do with justice for the poor. Gracious here is about giving somebody a coat to keep them warm at night. And then we see the word pop up again in two kings. Hazael, king of Aram, oppressed Israel throughout the reign of Jehoaz. But the Lord Yahweh was gracious to them and has compassion and showed concern for them. Here, gracious is saving Israel from annihilation by a foreign army. And then again, it shows up in the Psalms where the psalmist again is quoting from Exodus chapter 34, our anchor verses. Psalm 86, verses 15 to 16. You, Lord, are a compassionate and a gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and in faithfulness. And then in the psalm comes a prayer, and the prayer is this. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Here we hear a prayer for God's grace. It's a prayer that God would um, rescue, that God would save Israel out of a place of danger. It's a prayer for the God who responds to actually do something. Yahweh is gracious. Yahweh is a verb. Yahweh is a God of action. So to recap, compassionate is a feeling word. Yahweh is like a father or even a mother, and we're like his children. But gracious is an action word. It means like a parent, God comes to the rescue when his kids need some help. Well, when you fuse these two words together and link them up, we start to see what Yahweh is like. He's compassionate and gracious. He's gracious and compassionate. If we could turn those two words into one English word, we'd do well to do so. So whenever we come before God, we come before Yahweh who feels and cares about us. But two, we come before a God who acts, who wants to help, who wants to do something about our situation. So let's have a quick think for a moment about the different ways that we can approach God. There are perhaps three basic ways that we tend to come before God. The first is based on what we've done. It sounds a bit like this. We, we pray something like, God, I'm, I'm a good person. God, I go to church. I volunteer. I give my money. So would you blank? The implicit idea here is that God owes you something. Why? Because you've been good. But it's got to be said, this game simply doesn't work with God. But there's a second way, another way that people come before God, and it's based on what's been done to us, or it's based on our circumstances. Maybe you find yourself in a tough spot in life. Maybe life isn't going too well. You need some help. So your prayer sounds something like this. 
God, you know, it's really hard right now, and God, I'm going through hell. How could you let this happen to me? It's simply not fair. Would you blank? In a sense, what we do with this kind of approach to God is we play the victim card. We're trying to show God just how badly we need his mercy. But in truth, what we're doing is we're trying to manipulate God to get the thing that we want. Now, of course, there is actually a time and a place to pray like this. It's called lament. This idea that it's right to protest all that's wrong in your life. It's right to protest about all that's wrong in the world. But it needs to be noted that lament is not the same as manipulation. They're two quite different things. But maybe there's a third or a better way forward, a third way that we can become before God. And this way of approaching God is not based on what we've done. It's not based on what's been done to us or our circumstances, but it's based on who God is and his mercy. In this posture, prayer sounds something like this. God, you're compassionate. God, you care about me. And you're gracious. You help. And God, you don't owe me a single thing. And there's a ton of other people in the world who have it worse than I do. But based on your mercy, Lord, I ask you to blank. Now, of course, it should be said there's no right or wrong way to pray. But Yahweh seems to find this third kind of uh, way of praying far more compelling than the first two. Now, having said all of that, that God is compassionate and he's gracious, so we deal with, or at least half deal with, the elephant that's in the room. What about those stories in the Bible? You know the ones, those stories, the ones where God seems to be the exact opposite from who he's described himself to be. As you flick through the pages of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, you discover there's an awful lot of violence while knowing what we know already about Old Testament times, perhaps it's obvious that there was a lot of violence in those days. The ancient world was cruel. It, it was a barbaric place. And Yahweh, as always, was kind of ahead of his people. He was always coaxing them forward to a place where they would love their enemy rather than behead them. But of course, any character transformation takes a long time. And it was a long journey for God's people. So as a consequence, we end up reading an awful lot of stories about a lot of bloody wars along the way. Now, of course, it's these stories that atheists love to blog about. It's these stories that fundamentalists love to yell about. And it's these stories that lots of us, when we read the Bible, get confused by and so just quick, quickly skip over them. But these stories are a challenge to us. They're incredibly hard to reconcile with the character of Yahweh and especially with the teachings of Jesus. Now, this is why I'm only half answering the question, because we're going to come back to these tricky stories in future weeks. I think Kay gets most of them. But for now, perhaps it's enough to say that, yes, God is compassionate and he's gracious. It's number one in his character trait. But that doesn't mean that because he's gracious and compassionate that he turns a blind eye to unrighteousness. In fact, as you read through the Bible, the even greater challenge of the Scriptures are all the stories where God's mercy seems to be demonstrated where it isn't even deserving. Do you know, in truth, there are actually more of those stories than there are the awkward stories that we'll come back to in future weeks about God's judgment. You see, in the middle of all this blood and gore, Yahweh, the compassionate and the gracious God, is constantly at work rescuing and saving people. And we need to keep these stories alive. Think for a moment about the story of Jonah. 
in the opening line of Jonah's autobiography, we read that the word of Yahweh came to Jonah and God said this, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, Nineveh is the, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, and Assyria was the dominant empire of the day, and it was the archenemy of Israel. They'd been at war with the Hebrews, with God's people on and off for centuries, so if anyone deserved judgment, God's judgment, it was this lot. Well, a few years ago, an archaeologist found the Ninevite Library, and there are lots of records there that are truly shocking. One of their kings in this library writes about making a pyramid of heads in front of his city and burning women and children alive. He doesn't sound like a very pleasant character. His sons in this same library are boasting about skinning a person alive and spreading this individual on the wall of the city. His son doesn't sound very pleasant either. And then there's another king who said this, I pierced his chin with my keen hand dagger. Through his jaw, I passed a rope, I put a dog chain upon him, and I made him occupy a kennel. These are the kinds of people that we're dealing with here. So what's my point? Well, these were not nice people, and these were people who were not deserving of God's mercy. But hang on to the story, because you'll see what they get. You see, if you're Jonah, Nineveh is not the kind of place where you want God to send you to plant a church. Which is why when he's told to go to Nineveh, Jonah headed in the opposite direction for Tarshish. And to be honest, I think I would have joined him. Well, you probably know the story after a run-in with a big fish and a storm. Jonah finally ends up getting sicked up on the shore of Nineveh. And he goes around the city, basically preaching a one-sentence message. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Well, let me put that a bit more succinctly. Forty more days and Yahweh is going to kill you. The gracious and compassionate God, Yahweh, is going to kill you. But in a shocking twist, the Ninevites repent. They turn away from the worship of other gods. They turn away from all the violence and the injustice that defined who they were and the injustice and the violence that flowed out of the worship of those false gods. And they turn to worship Yahweh, the Creator. And then we read this, Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented. And he did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened, or we might say that they deserved. God responds, God relents, God changes his mind. He was going to destroy the Ninevites, but when he saw genuine repentance, he had mercy and he changed his mind and the city went on enjoying a long life. Now, you would think in this moment that Jonah would be pleased that he was the beginning of a revival in this amazing city, but instead, Jonah has the adult version of a toddler's temper tantrum. Jonah absolutely rages at God, and what does he quote at God? He quotes straight back at God, Exodus chapter 34. I knew you were gracious, and I knew you were compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord Yahweh, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Isn't this brilliant? Jonah's really mad at God. Why? Because Yahweh was compassionate and gracious towards his enemies. Towards his enemies. You see, here's the point of the story. We all love that God is compassionate and God is gracious with us and with our friends. But what about when he's merciful to our enemies? What about when God shows mercy to people who hurt us or stomp on us or gossip about us behind our backs or lie to us to the boss or betray us or divorce us or abandon us? 
Can you see the problem with this God, Yahweh? You just can't trust him from refrain from blessing people who don't deserve it. Why? Because he's compassionate and he's gracious to everybody, to the very core of his being. Now, I need to clearly state that God is also just. God does get angry when there is injustice. God does get angry when there is sin, and we're going to deal with that in the weeks to come, and we'll understand why. But for now, what I want us to know is that his baseline emotion towards us is mercy. He's compassionate and he's gracious. And of course, as you get into the New Testament, we see this all over the teachings of Jesus. One of Jesus' most disturbing and unpopular teachings was a teaching about nonviolence and loving the enemy. He said this, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, Jesus' teachings on loving an enemy weren't some kind of abstract idea, but in fact, they're a concrete reality that's grounded in Yahweh's character. It's his number one character trait. In story after story captured in the gospel, people came to Jesus, they begged for mercy, and they go away healthy, and they go away free. Now, Jesus wasn't just healing people because he was nice. He was healing people because compassion and graciousness is in his DNA. Such a response is born out of his character, out of Yahweh's character. If you joined us this morning in our live stream, you would have heard me make reference to the parable of the prodigal son, perhaps one of the most amazing parables that Jesus ever told. It's really a parable about the father, not about the son. But the son has done everything in this story to break his father's heart. But the father's compassion is unshakable. And Jesus, as he was telling this story, was saying, look, this is my view of God. This is my understanding of who Yahweh is. And this is why I'm telling you the story, because I want you to grasp this as well. The father in the story is like my heavenly father. He's a running, arms open wide, hugging kind of a father. And Jesus says to us, like I call him father, like I call him daddy, you too are invited to call him daddy. For Jesus, the primary way we relate to God is not as some puny mortal cowering before an angry, malignant deity in the sky, but we should come to God as sons and daughters in daddy's lap. We should come to God as those who run into his embrace, as we were thinking this morning, in trust, in vulnerability, in intimacy, in relationship, and in love. Now, all of this has implications for us. As God is compassionate, so we too are to be compassionate. As God is gracious, so we too should be gracious. If we're sons and daughters of a heavenly father, then compassion and graciousness ought to be in our DNA as well as we're filled with the fruit of the Spirit and as we're transformed daily more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And that's a journey and it's a a season of growth and it can take some time, but that ought to be our character trait if we're following Jesus. So as I close, I want to leave us with a few questions. And the first is this, who is it that we are showing mercy to? Who do we need to act graciously towards? Who do we need to have a feeling of love towards? Who should we be feeling compassionate towards? And if we're feeling compassionate, then we ought to be led into an act of graciousness as well, which leads us to action. And as I finish, I finish with this. 
I'd love for us to remember from this teaching this evening, if nothing else, that no matter where we've been or what we've done recently, even if we come to God with the pigsty smell still in our clothes or in our breath, then the Father is running towards us. His arms are spread wide. His smile is big. He's kissing our faces. The cooks are in the kitchen. They're getting busy, ready for the party. Why? Because Yahweh's foundation starting point with us is compassion and graciousness. Wow. Therefore, because of all that, Hebrews 4.16, we can approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we will receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need.